My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hey, it's Jordan. A really quick note before we start. If you would like to support humanitarian relief efforts in the Middle East, Rogers, which owns this program, is going to match donations to the Canadian Red Cross's special fund. Canadians can donate five bucks to support Canadian Red Cross's Middle East humanitarian crisis appeal by texting the word Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, to 20222 in English or 30333 in French. Anything you can give. Rogers will match until October 31st, 2023. So if you're looking to help some people out who could really use it, this is a good way to do it. In a perfect world, actually, forget that. Just in a reasonably sane world, acknowledging a problem massively and publicly and repeatedly would be a great first step. One that would lead to a second step and a third step, and so on. Anyway, here's the first step. We said we'd work with municipalities to get housing built faster, and that's exactly what we're doing right across the country. Today we got the devastating news that not only are we not increasing home building, home building was down in August. We have to build 1.5 million homes. Everyone has to divide that share up, and... Uh, there, we, we just, uh, we need homes. Every politician in Canada will tell you that we need more homes, that Canada faces a housing crisis. Canada's Mortgage and Housing Corporation released a report last month, in fact, that found we need 3.5 million new homes by 2030 to restore affordability. So yeah, we got the acknowledging the problem bit down pat. And we have for a while... So now surely, we are ramping up construction, recognizing the urgency, and ensuring that we're doing everything we can to close that gap. Would it surprise you to hear that the answer to that is not so much? In fact, the answer to that is not at all. A second report, this one from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, has found that right now, we are actually building fewer homes than we were during the worst of the pandemic. A time, as you may recall, when many construction sites were shuttered completely. Never mind slowly closing the gap. We are actively widening it. To put this bluntly, what the hell? What is getting in the way of building new homes in Canada? Why aren't developers launching new projects, and if they won't, why aren't our various governments? Why? For all the public hand-wringing on this issue, on every side of the political aisle, why aren't the bleepin' shovels in the bleepin' ground? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. David McDonald is a senior economist for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives National Office. He is the author of that report I just mentioned. 
Hello, David. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it is a pleasure. I wish we were here to deliver some good news, uh, but since we're talking about housing in Canada, that rarely happens. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a bad news fall, that's for sure, in terms of the impact on interest rates, uh, not only on people that have mortgages, but also on people that are renting. I mean, we often sort of forget that there are a lot of people in Canada that rent, and rents have seen the biggest increase year over year that we've ever seen, actually, in the inflation statistics uh, you know, going back to the 1990s. So it's also a bad news picture for renters, all for the same reason, uh, which is higher interest rates. Well, I wanted to start by maybe setting a baseline because this report illustrates just how we're falling behind the amount of new homes, whether uh, to own or to rent, that'll be required. How many homes do we need to build and how do we figure out how far behind we are versus what we're going to need? Yeah, I mean, so so CMHC, uh, this is the federal government's housing authority, published and actually updated a report they did last year, uh, just in September, so just last month, where they were looking at estimates going out to 2030 of the the number of houses we would need, quote unquote. Now, of course, the we would need piece we could talk about in a little second. Uh, you know, we're on track to build 2.3 million new houses between now and 2030. Uh, but they think that we should build, we should be building closer to 6 million. Hmm. So we'd have to more than double our rate of home construction to hit this 6 million number, uh, just under 6 million number by 2030. In Ontario as well, uh, you know, the Ontario government's projection is, is 1.5 million, which is roughly in line with the CMHC figure, you know, in terms of additional houses that would need to be built there. Mm-hmm. Why do we need we need to double construction? Well, there's a couple factors in this analysis. Uh, the first is obviously just affordability. You know, we have seen some decline in house prices since interest rates went up, but they're still nowhere near where they were in 2019. And no one thought that 2019 was the paragon of affordability for houses in Canada. Mm -hmm. So the goal for the CMHC report is to get affordability back to 2004 levels. It was around that time when we started to see this big kickoff uh, of increases in house prices that had just hasn't stopped. Right. You know, you, you could have this discussion in 2010 or 2015, you know, houses are completely unaffordable in 2015, and then they doubled between 2015 and 2019, and then they doubled again between 2019 and 2022. And, you know, they've come down a bit, but we're still well ahead of where we were in 2019. The CMHC target in terms of what they define as affordability is people spending no more than 30% of their income on housing. Mm-hmm. So that can be on the, on rent, uh, but it can also be uh, in terms of, you know, your your mortgage costs, for instance. But for a lot of people in big cities, that's pretty unobtainable. A lot of people yep. are spending a lot more than 30% of their income on rent. But it would have been much closer to that in 2004. And so you want to get it back to being that affordable level. You want to factor in population growth, which is going to happen between now and 2030. And you also want to factor in household size preferences. You know, if you go back 20 or 30 years, you had much larger household sizes. Right. Uh, You know, more people were living together and therefore you didn't need as many houses because people were living together. We prefer as Canadians now, because marriage happens later, for instance, to uh, live alone for a longer period. And therefore you need a lot more houses to cover that. And so this is kind of a housing preference. You know, we've roughly kept up pace in terms of new builds with population growth over the last five or 10 years since the last census. But the problem is we have a preference for smaller household size, and so we need more houses. The big headline from your report, where it was covered in the media, is that we're currently 
building fewer homes now than during lockdown in 2020. And I mean, I have two questions about that. The first is, uh, how do we measure that? Is that by homes coming on the market, the rates of approvals for zoning, or how many homes we're making per month? And second is just like, how is that possible given the goals that you just outlined of where we need to get? The measure that I settled on was investment. So this is the amount of money that's being spent in general on things that are being built that aren't that have yet to be switched over and sold uh, to the end, you know, investor, owner, or whatever. So it particularly it really smooths out the apartments data, but gets the in between of you know, did you did you start a house then you didn't finish it? You know, did you get a permit but then you didn't build it? Hmm. Did you get an apartment block that's fifty units and you're building it? Um, that still counts towards investment. So. You know, the big takeaway is that since rate hikes started, we're seeing big declines across the board in this investment figure. It's worse in single family homes, which are down by a third since rate hikes started. In semi-detached, it's down by about a quarter. In apartment buildings, it's down by about a fifth. Uh, row houses, it's pretty equal. Uh, you know, row houses were down a little bit when the rate hike started in any event. And so that's relatively equal. And so I've sort of compared it, you know, both to when the rate hike started in February 2020, or rather just before they started. Uh, but you don't, you can also compare it to April of 2020. This was in the depths of the lockdown, depending on which province you were in, construction sites were actually like closed as opposed, you know, as opposed to there being some restriction, like they were legitimately closed. People were on EI, right? Or on serve at that point. Mm -hmm. And so even compared to that as a measure, we're below that in every single one of these categories, spending less in new residential construction now than in a period where, you know, job sites were just closed down by law. And so this obviously does not bode well for the future. Now, of course, it takes time to build you know, houses are in the neighborhood of 18 months. Uh, once you get into sort of apartment blocks, that's anywhere two years and up from the start of construction to completion, where you're actually turning that, you're handing the keys over. But even that kind of underestimates what happened because there's a process that happens before you start building, right? I mean, you've mm -hmm. got to buy the land, you've got to get the permits, you've got to get buildings approved, and then you break ground. And so you think of like apartment buildings, I mean, it's more like, five years in kind of the best case scenario right. between when it's a twinkle in someone's eye and you're giving keys out to people and saying, you know, come move into your new apartment building. Uh, so like times are large. And this is in some sense, a longer term impact of interest rates on the housing market, because we're seeing this decline now that's going to impact us for years. We've just covered the insane demand that we're going to have for housing over the next uh, 10, 20 years. Why would rising interest rates now deter developers from investing in that housing that they clearly know will be there will be a huge market for? Well, I mean, they're reacting to the market as it exists now, not to the, the market that may exist five or 10 years from now. And so what the issue is, is interest rates constrain people's ability to pay for new builds. So a year and a half ago, um, when the interest rates were zero, you could afford a lot more house because your mortgage payments were a lot less for your million dollar house or half a million dollar house or whatever than you can today when interest rates are 5% higher. And so you just can't afford those mortgage payments anymore. And so we've seen a big decline in the volume of houses that are being transacted. And so as a home builder, you look at this and you say, I'm going to build these houses 
at my cost. I've got carrying costs myself, right? So, you know, you're building a house. Well, you got to finance that somehow. You got to go to the bank and say, look, I need a loan. And the bank says, well, you know how we gave you that last loan? Uh, it's five percentage points more. So your costs have gone up. And then you think, okay, now I've got to turn around and sell this house. And all these folks are drowning in debt and they can't get a mortgage or they can't get a mortgage, but they can't afford as much. Right. And so is that a risk you're willing to take on? Well, increasingly, you might say, no, it's not a risk I'm willing to take on because my own costs are going up as a result of interest rates. I'm not sure I can move this as a result of interest rates, whether it's an individual homeowner or, or even say a business, for instance, that's buying you know, in a purpose-built rental apartment building, they might say, well, you know, the economics don't work anymore. Maybe I could have made money given rent, rental values, you know, two years ago, but I can't now because I have to pay up a much bigger mortgage. And so what's interesting here is that this is predictable. I mean, this was predicted by the Bank of Canada. You know, there was a paper that they wrote just before the pandemic hit in 2018, where they looked at, if you jack up interest rates, what are the parts of the economy that get impacted by this? Top of the list, new residential investment. Hmm. The bank did predict in advance that this would be the area that draws down economic growth. You know, their goal isn't house construction. They don't care about house construction per se. They care about the, the inflation rate. Right. And this is how it happens, is new residential constructions, renovations, as well as homeownership transfer costs. That's the other piece of it. So you've, you've got a lot less volume in transactions because people aren't buying houses. And so everybody involved in that transaction, you know, the real estate agent fees, the mortgage brokers, and so on, they have less business as well. And that's one of the other ways it affects GDP. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Given that the Bank of Canada is not specifically in the business of making it easy for people to build houses, where is there a chance to break this logjam uh, that is keeping us from building the houses that we will obviously need as the bank tries to sort of slow us down and avoid a recession? I mean, you know, as you say, the Bank of Canada, their goal is not home construction. Uh, you know, their goal is not economic growth. Their goal is not a strong labor market. Their goal is lower inflation. And if we get there via a recession or via a collapse of the the new construction residential housing, that's fine. Yeah. I think they would prefer it to be otherwise because they're human beings and so on. But, the, you know, they have a tool. It's interest rates. This is how interest rates work. They work by tanking residential investment in terms of new construction and renovation, as well as the homeownership stuff. You know, governments don't want this to happen. I mean, there's a lot of interest at the government levels, you know, whether it's federal or provincial uh, in terms of encouraging new home construction. And a lot of that is really premised on on private sector investment. So it's premised on the private sector doing this, uh, funding it and buying it in the end. So whether mm -hmm. that's households uh, buying new houses or whether it's businesses buying new purpose-built rental or condos or whatever. And so one of the federal pushes has been to encourage faster approvals, broadly speaking, at the municipal level, um, whether you're approving plans for a new build or you're zoning more quickly or something like that. But of course, you can approve and permit all you want if the private sector decides the economics aren't there, they're not going to build those buildings. Mm -hmm. Is there another route? I mean, are we totally beholden to 
private sector incentives that that has been the case in the past. Um, you know, one of the one of the latest changes for the federal government has been the removal of the GST, which was charged when you transferred a new purpose built apartment building. I was going to ask if that has had any effect yet or if we know if it will. Yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't show up in the statistics yet. Right. We'll definitely have to watch it over time to see if the apartment building side of things is not being hit quite as hard as, say, the single-family home side. That would maybe be some indication that this is working. But again, this is very much on the private sector side. So this is the private sector. You know, one side wants to buy a purpose-built rental building, and so the other side builds it, and so they buy it, and so they don't have this GST charge in the middle. Will that make a difference? It, it may. It's possible. You know, part of the problem is that interest rates, in many ways, are a lot more powerful than these incentives. And so you can think of, like, you know, governments coming to the construction site with, like, a hammer and a nail, and the Bank of Canada coming with a wrecking ball. Like, does that <laughs> does the nail help? Like, I mean, sort of, but, you know, it, it may well still get wrecked by the wrecking ball. Now, you know, there is another route in terms of continuing to drive up investment, which is that instead of relying on the private sector to fund it based on their own incentives and their own economics and business models, you could have the public sector do it. And so the way you would do that is you would provide much lower interest loans subsidized by the federal government or by provincial governments, say through nonprofit providers, you give them a zero interest mortgage. You know, a business would have to go out and get a mortgage. You know, if you're you're thinking of like purpose-built rental, for instance, you know, they'd be in the six, seven percent range, maybe, mm-hmm. and you give it to a nonprofit provider to build a new building at zero percent. Well, you know, that really changes the incentives and allows nonprofit providers maybe to build some of this stock out. The federal government could build it themselves. You know, this was something that CMHC did. Uh, in the 70s and 80s and really got out of the business at the start of the 90s was directly funding non-market housing where the goal of the housing isn't to maximize rents. The goal of the housing is to pay the mortgage in essence and the costs. Right. Uh, And so there is a public answer to this. It does require a pivot though. Why do you think we're so afraid of using that public answer? Because we've covered programs like this that used to exist on this show before. And yeah, by and large, most of them simply got phased out as, I guess, home prices got cheaper and and more affordable for people. But I always have this question of, of why governments are so hesitant to get back in the business of building housing. Yeah, I mean, I think that housing hasn't been seen as a public good in a long time. Hmm. I mean, governments are perfectly willing to take out a loan and build a bridge mm-hmm. uh, and take out a loan and build a highway. That's sort of considered public, the public good. And, you know, and even if there's a, you know, you think of like a bridge with a toll that pays back the mortgage over time or something like that. Housing similar, right? You build houses and you charge rent and the rent pays back the mortgage. Right. The other interesting thing is that if you structure it like that, like a bridge, it doesn't show up as uh, an increase in the deficit. Uh, You know, think federally or provincially, as long as the government owns it. It's not an increase in the deficit because you're building an asset and you're paying back that asset over time. And I think, you know, in a way, we have been looking at housing as a public good that that in the past, maybe we thought, uh, you know, it's a problem, it's going to go away. But, you know, this level of construction isn't going to happen without more public involvement. And it's certainly not going to happen in a high interest rate environment without more public involvement. Now, you know, to some degree, a lot of this housing supply, you know, we were living off of the benefits of these big builds in the 70s and 80s for a decade or two uh, when we weren't building affordable housing. Instead, there was a big switch to to condominiums. Mm -hmm. So you end up with more of a secondary market, 
for rental. So people buy condos as investment properties. So like housing becomes a private investment vehicle as opposed to a public good. And I mean, my hope is that looking at this and saying, look, the private sector is not going to do this with high interest rates. The public sector needs to do this. Um, it hopefully tweaks folks to the fact that we need, you know, we need a change in approach to to housing affordability. It's one thing for us to talk about it. It's another thing for anybody in a position of power to be talking about taking another tact seriously. Is that happening? I mean, there's clearly a lot of interest here. I mean, this is a huge issue for Canadians. People think of inflation as one of the big issues, certainly on food prices. But the other thing they think of in terms of inflation is rent and house costs. Mm -hmm. And it's not as if governments aren't attempting to provide solutions. They are attempting to provide solutions. It is an active issue. It's not as if we're talking about something like a wealth tax that kind of comes up every election and nobody does anything about. One of the primary means that interest rates affect the economy is through new residential investment. I'm not sure that that recognition has really taken hold. Right. I think that a lot of folks think that higher interest rates are the short-term thing and we're going to go back to zero in a couple of years. I'm not sure that that's true. And so in a new environment where we're at, five, six percent overnight rate from the Bank of Canada, that just changes things fundamentally, particularly when it comes to things like uh, like residential investment. To the point you just made, you know, a, a lot of folks have been saying, well, I mean, the economy really is slowing down. Maybe we're headed for a soft landing. Maybe this uh, rate increases have peaked and we'll start slowly coming down. Do you see any evidence of that? And uh, to elaborate on, on what you just said, like, what happens if this continues for another few years? Um, how much further can we afford to fall behind? The trouble is that this that these are these are actually long term solutions to affordability. Right. They are, they're not short term. You know, even if we double construction right now, which we haven't, and we're down thirty percent instead of up fifty or hundred, this is a problem that's going to continue for a while. You know, I think that there are probably shorter term solutions that we haven't gotten to yet that would affect affordability. The rent, in particular. I think that we could be much bolder here. And I think people are looking for bolder solutions. I mean, the GST credited on new purpose. I mean, this is a bit of kind of in the weeds. I'm not saying it's not going to have an impact. It may, but it is very much in the weeds. But I think more visible pieces could could potentially change the story in the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, you know, there is a lot of purpose-built rental that exists and transacts. So people buy and sell purpose-built rental buildings. You know, in big cities, there are nonprofit housing providers that are in the market for buying purpose-built rental. And one of the things we could do is provide them with very cheap mortgages, you know, think of like 0% mortgages to outbid the private sector. So they outbid the private sector, move more units into the nonprofit side, reduce rents in the process. And so that's one thing that could happen. I mean, we could look at banning Airbnbs in big cities as a means of bringing you know, a couple percentage points of rental from very short term into longer term rental is something that happened in New York hmm. just recently, actually just happened this fall. Um, rent controls are, as a key, are a key part of constraining rental increases over time. So some provinces don't have rent controls at all, like Alberta, some provinces like Ontario have them, but they can be sidestepped depending on when a building was built or depending on what else you're building. I mean, the other piece that's often discussed is moving investors out of a lot of the the secondary rental markets, so as investors owning condos, for instance. And you could do that pretty quickly if you wanted to, but it would require some, some big changes. Um, one of them would be restricting mortgages. So you could say, look, if you want to be an investor in a condo, you get to put 80% down on that condo, not 20%. You know, that would really change the economics of it if you had to buy it basically in cash. Hmm. Um, the other thing you could do is set 
change transfer taxes on secondary units. So you could put transfer taxes, secondary units to 15, 20%. I'd say they're going to come in in a year. Well, a lot of people would move those units in the next year. Uh, and so you, you see a big turnover between investors and, and owners. The one challenge with that, of course, is that there's a trade-off that would probably reduce house prices. But previous studies on this shows that it often increases rents because those you know, secondary units, people aren't living in them. The point is they're buying them as investment properties to rent out. So it decreased the cost of, you know, buying a condo, for instance, or buying, you know, a, a row house that was otherwise rented, but now it's not on the rental market, so rents go up. And so, you know, that's often discussed, but there's absolutely a trade-off there. We need to understand that trade-off. Right. I mean, those are bold, right? I mean, a federal government came out tomorrow and said, we're banning Airbnb in the big cities, and that would be a substantial change or changing the rules around, you know, investors. That would be a substantial change. Yeah. I'm not sure we're there yet, um, but those would, I mean, they would have an impact in the short term. Now, you know, when it comes to interest rates, you know, we've got another decision coming up at the end of this month. We saw pretty negative news on the, you know, the latest CPI data coming in at 4%, which is well above what the bank expected, uh, which was around 3% and well above their target, which is 2%. I'm concerned that we're going to see another data point on CPI, uh, which will come in in about a week and a bit. Uh, that that CPI will be well above the top of their range, which is 3%, maybe at 3.5. And that would almost certainly lock us in for another rate increase at the end of this month. And this is the concern, right, is you end up in this situation where inflation isn't coming down as quickly as you'd like. And so the bank needs to be seen as being reputable, quote unquote, on this. Uh, And so we continue to see rates increase Parts of the CPI index now are being driven by those higher rate increases. So like the inflation index is made up of things like mortgage interest costs and things like rent. Well, as interest rates go higher, those things go higher and they end up driving inflation. So part of inflation is being driven up by higher interest rates. Hmm. Um, well, potentially other parts are being driven down like um, like new houses, but not as quickly. So it's not immediately obvious that higher interest rates are going to drive down inflation in the short term. And so this is, you know, we're in this dangerous situation now where inflation has come down a bit, but it's not a target. And so we we may see further rate hikes to come. We haven't seen real GDP growth in a year almost, you know, since last October, except for January, where we did see sort of strong real GDP growth. But uh, after that, it's been dead flat. It's been dead flat since January. No real GDP growth. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been negative, which would be a recession, but it hasn't been positive. We haven't seen that develop yet really on the labor market side. I mean, we're seeing some indication in the labor market that it's weakening a bit, but we haven't, hasn't really come through, but economic growth has been pretty slow. And one of the reasons why is that this new residential investment has been dragging it down. Mm. This is one of the areas where we've seen big declines, uh, you know, as the report points out since, uh, since rate hikes started. David, it is an incredibly uh, tricky situation and complex. And thank you so much for kind of explaining to us uh, how it works behind the scenes. Oh, sure thing. Well, thanks so much for having me. David McDonald of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives National Office. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you'd like to comment on this episode or any other, we love to hear from listeners. You can find us on Twitter at the Big Story FPN. If anyone's still on that site anymore, I am, sadly. You can find me there. You can also just send us an email, hello at the Big Story Podcast.ca, or leave us a voicemail, 416 935 5935. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.